please turn to Psalm 3. We're going to be looking at Psalm 3. And the, the title of this psalm, well it's given to us, it's very conveniently given to us there. At the, the title there, a psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. I can't improve on that. Let's read Psalm 3. Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory and the lifter up of mine head. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill. I laid me down and slept, I awaked, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. Thy blessing is upon thy people. Amen. I propose just to look at the first couple of verses this evening. We may well continue with it next week, God willing. We're told that the author of this psalm is David, king of Israel. And we're also told that the psalm refers to a time when David fled from his son Absalom. And that would have been about a thousand years before the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world. By looking elsewhere in the Bible, we learn that Absalom was the third eldest of David's sons and that he had returned to Jerusalem after three years in exile in Geshur, where his maternal grandfather was the king. He was a Philistine king. He had fled there after sending his servants to kill his half-brother, half-brother Amnon, in revenge for Amnon raping Tamar. Now Tamar was Absalom's sister and she was also, she was also Amnon's half-sister. Having been reinstated by his father, King David, Absalom would get up early in the morning and he would intercept the people who had some kind of legal dispute and were going to the king to seek justice. Absalom would say to them, look, your case is good and right, but there is no deputy of the king to hear you. Moreover, Absalom would say, oh, that I were made judge in the land. He was being very clever, very sneaky here. And everyone who has any suit or or cause would come to me. Then I would give him justice. (coughs) Also, he would take hold of them and he would kiss them. Absalom, the, the, the son of King David, would take hold of the subjects and kiss them instead of waiting for them to bow down and pay homage to him. That would have been more usual 
for them to bow down before him. Furthermore, Absalom was extremely handsome. As it is written in 2 Samuel chapter 14 verse 25, Now in all Israel there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. A truly handsome young man. Not surprisingly, with his dashingly good looks, his charm, Absalom stole the hearts and the loyalty of the people of Israel. Consequently, all that his father achieved on behalf and for Israel, all of that was very soon forgotten. Finally, David, he fled across the brook Kidron on the east of Jerusalem and he took refuge beyond the river Jordan when Absalom rose up against him. As will soon become apparent, there is much in this psalm to fix our meditations on the Lord Jesus Christ who also experienced rejection. As it is written of Jesus in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 3, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Looking at Psalm 3 and verse 1, Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. In 2 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 12, it is written that the conspiracy was strong for the people increased continually with Absalom. And here in verse 1, we see much the same thing being expressed in David's cry to God with the words, Lord, how they are increased that trouble me. Many are they that rise up against me. It's as well to remember that David had been a very popular king, having distinguished himself as a mighty warrior even before he became king. For example, in his youth, he slew the Philistine giant Goliath. David's predecessor, King Saul, set him over the men of war and he was accepted in the sight of all the people. But now in Psalm 3, it's a very different story with the people troubling King David and rising up against him. It goes to show just how shallow and how fickle people can be with their affections and with their loyalties. I've seen it happen in families when the faithful old dog that used to give and receive so much love suddenly receives no more attention and is ignored when the beautiful and oh so cute new puppy makes its grand entrance. I've seen it in my own family. And people are just as shallow with their affections for one another. We see that increasingly in marriage relationships. It's reached epidemic proportions where vows of fidelity seem to count for nothing. And marriages end in divorce when someone else steals the affections of one of the spouses. Also, people are just as fickle with those who rule over them. Sometimes we have good reason to reject our leaders, oftentimes in fact. It doesn't alter the fact that we can be very fickle. 
as can be seen in this psalm. According to 2 Samuel chapter 15, even King David's confidant and counsellor, Ahithophel, rose up against him by abandoning him and giving counsel to Absalom on how to destroy him. This was David's own counsellor. However, the greatest example of uprising and betrayal must surely have been a thousand years later when King Jesus was heading towards Jerusalem and great crowds met him and greeted him with the words, Hosanna, blessed is the King of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. What happened just a week later? when Jesus had been arrested and paraded before a crowd by the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. That crowd, that fickle crowd, who just a week before had said, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed be the King of Israel that come in the name of the Lord. They chose Barabbas, a convicted murderer, a robber, an insurrectionist over Jesus. They chose him to be released. As for Jesus, well, they didn't shout it. The the chief priests shouted, crucify him, crucify him. But when those chief priests said those words, I'm sure they said it on behalf of the baying crowd that mocked the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine it? The judge of all the earth, the incarnate son of God, no less, standing beaten and bloody next to a violent criminal and being chosen by the baying crowd to be crucified and to be put to death. Something else for you to imagine. Imagine that you were there in that crowd and that you weren't a Christian. In other words, you were not born again, you were not indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you were not left to your own sinful desires, you were not being restrained by God. What do you imagine that you would have done when the rest of the crowd were shouting, crucify him, crucify him, and they were mocking the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of glory? What would you have done? Before you answer that one, just bear in mind that in John chapter 7 and verse 7, Jesus said to his brothers, brothers according to the flesh, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. Also, in John chapter 3 verse 19, Jesus said, this is the condemnation that light That's Jesus, he is the light. Light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. Again, what would you have done if you had been there? Who would you have chosen to be released? Barabbas, the insurrectionist, or Jesus, who who knew no sin? The Prince of Peace, no less. The incarnate Son of God. I don't know about you, but I can almost hear myself shouting, 
crucify him, crucify him. And in Psalm 41 and verse 9, David wrote, Even my own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. I've already told you with the first reading, those words were fulfilled at the place of the skull. Or even before that, the night before Jesus was crucified. In the first instance, when David said, even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Sure, he could have been talking about his own circumstances, about his counsellor, Ahithophel, lifting up his heel, his heel against him and betraying him to Absalom. However, that verse most certainly, as we've seen in John's Gospel, had its fulfilment when Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus to the priests, the chief priests, for 30 pieces of silver. Let's have a look at verse 2. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for, there is no help for him in God. King David fled from Jerusalem with a, a comparatively small number of men. The Kerephites, the Pelophites, his personal guard and some others. Not many though. By and large, he was rejected. And when he fled, he left behind ten concubines. Acting upon the counsel of Ahithophel, Absalom had intimate relations with those ten concubines and he did so in full view of all Israel. That was a fulfilment of words spoken by Nathan the prophet after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and Nathan had said to David, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbour and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, you did it with Bathsheba, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun, in full view of all Israel. And that was fulfilled with Absalom having intimate relations with David's concubines. With all that in mind, it's perhaps reasonable to see why David's disloyal subjects and conspirators viewed him as being utterly forsaken by God. That wasn't David's finest hour, was it, when his own son had intimate relations with his concubines in full view of Israel. However, when it comes to the king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ, unlike King David, he never committed adultery. In fact, he never sinned at all. Even so, when Jesus was crucified, he too was considered to be totally abandoned by God, with the chief priests mockingly saying, he trusted in God, let, her, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. 
Admittedly, when Jesus was lifted up to die upon that wooden cross, he most certainly did cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? However, we need to be very careful not to dismantle the triune Godhead in our sin-stained thoughts. We, we need to be careful not to imagine that the incarnate Son of God was quite literally forsaken or abandoned by his Father. For one thing, how can God forsake God? Work that one out. Also, everything that the Lord Jesus Christ ever did was in obedience to his Father's will. What do we read in Philippians chapter 2? He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Throughout his life and in his death, Jesus, the Son of God, was obedient to his Father. It was his food to do the will of his Father. And so... Again, we need to be very careful with this. I like what the commentators said, such as the commentator who said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Was not a cry of despair, but a cry of loving faith. I think the clue lies in the words, My God, my God. Even though Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He still owned God as his God. As for those words, why hast thou forsaken me? Which Jesus most certainly did say. I like what John Gill had to say. Gill said, why hast thou forsaken me? Which is to be understood, not as if the hypostatical or personal union of the divine and human natures were dissolved. So, again, bear in mind that Jesus is God. Fully God. It's not as if his divine nature forsook his human nature. We can forget that one. Or... That one was now separated from the other for the fullness of the Godhead still dwelt bodily in him. Nor that he ceased to be the object of the Father's love. For so he was in the midst of all his sufferings. Yea, his Father loved him because he laid down his life for the sheep. He was now deprived of the gracious presence of God of the manifestations of his love to his human soul and had in a sense of divine wrath not for his own sins but for the sins of his people and was for a while destitute of help and comfort all which were necessary in order to make satisfaction for sin for as he had the sins of his people imputed to him he must bear the whole punishment of them that's what Gill says. So what we needn't do here and what we mustn't do is think that God turned away from Jesus and, if you like, disowned him, albeit for the time that he was on the cross. The Lord Jesus Christ, 
He bare in his own body the sins of all who would ever trust in him. He took upon him the curse of a broken law. The curse that was rightly upon you, dear Christian. God laid your iniquity, your wickedness upon Jesus at that cross. All these things most certainly were the case. And so in that sense, when the Lord Jesus Christ was nailed to that cross, he was there in your place. He stood. But he never ceased to be the beloved Son of God. Just as the voice from heaven, when Jesus was baptised, the voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in him I am well pleased. We needn't imagine that that love had evaporated when Jesus was nailed to the cross and lifted up to die. He completed the work that his father sent him to do on that cross. We considered the rebellion against King David with his son Absalom and his subjects and his counsellor counselor troubling him and rising up against him we've also seen how the Jews rose up against the Lord Jesus Christ nothing has changed that that was 2,000 years ago with the Lord Jesus Christ add on another thousand years for David 3,000 years ago David was alive The rebellion against Jesus is as strong as ever with the kings of the earth setting themselves or rising up in fury and the rulers taking counsel against the Lord and against his Christ. If anything, it has become even more um, intense. Therefore, not surprisingly in much of the world, Becoming a Christian, becoming a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, being baptised in Christ, putting on Christ, trusting in him as your saviour from sin, will inevitably be a sure way of alienating yourself and being troubled and having people rise up against you and in certain parts of the world even killing you. When I was speaking to Joel, who was here uh, last week, for, the, for the, our visitors, Joel Kenny, she's a missionary in Cambodia. We had the great privilege of her company last week. When I was speaking to her about things, um, I explained that five years ago, when I and others were protesting against abortion, against the killing of unborn babies, the murder of unborn babies. And we were there with our banners, seeking to engage people in conversation, looking for those opportunities to to speak to people about the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not exaggerating when I say that there were those, some people were so hostile, they would have killed me. And others, if they could get away with it. There's no doubt about that. They had murderous intent. 
I had a taste of it five years ago. But that is how it is. You are a stranger, a pilgrim in this world, if you belong to Jesus. This world is not your home. You have a biblical worldview, which is diametrically opposed to the secular worldview. The things that this world loves, by the grace of God, you hate. The things that this world hates, by the grace of God, you love. The difference between darkness and light. Unless you are hiding your light under the bushel. And that may well be possible. I'm sure there's more than a few Christians. Their work colleagues wouldn't even have a clue that they're Christians. Or people, Christians at school or in college, and their, their, their peers wouldn't have a clue that they belong to Jesus. But by and large, if you have a faith which is visible and audible, you will be the target of hostility. That's not me saying that, that's the Bible. That's Jesus saying those things. And his apostles. Most of the time, people will not thank you for telling them that they are sinners, that they need the Saviour. I saw a little video clip the other day. Um, a preacher in a, a university campus in America boldly preaching repentance for sin and the gospel message. Faith, uh, salvation through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he was, his main... What he was talking about mainly was repentance, calling on those college students to repent. And then there's a, there's a, a young student and he suddenly identified himself as a Christian and he said, don't listen to that, that, um, judgmental preacher. God is love. God is love. Who can argue with that? God is love. He is love, of course he is. But then it took an atheist, a fellow student who was an atheist, to rebuke the Christian, the Christian student and say to him, I've known you for how long now? See you every day. And you've never told me these things, what I'm hearing from the preacher. Is that love? And it's not, is it? So if you as a Christian are showing love, and that doesn't just mean having a nice gooey smile for your friends, your your friends who are on their way to uh, eternal damnation, eternal punishment. If you are telling people about Jesus crucified for sinners, that great act of love, the greatest act of love ever in the whole of history if you have got the holy bottle to do that to talk about Jesus the love of God that was manifest on that centre cross are you going to be popular 
I doubt it. But that's love. That is love. You say those, you can say those things lovingly. I try to, I, I don't sound very loving. I'm working on that one. But the point is, you need to be someone, as a Christian, who is not keeping it to yourself. So, people will not thank you for telling them that they're sinners in need of a saviour. Neither will your sober, godly and righteous lifestyle endear you to them. They won't like all that stuff. Without you even going out of your way to lose family and friends, they may, they may well decide to lose you if you are a follower of Jesus. I'm sure there are Christians, perhaps in here tonight, who have had more than a few arguments from with their own family, simply because they are followers of Jesus, for no other reason. Even so, praise God. And when people do trouble you and rise up against you because you are a new creature in Christ, seeking God's enabling grace to live your born again life for his glory, praise God. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. Far better that than to be part of the crowd. That crowd that is on its way to hell. There is a, there, what's it say? What, what do we have in the Bible? There is a way that seems right unto man, but is, it is the way of destruction. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Finally, dear Christian, if ever your situation becomes such that you are perceived to be without help from God, you can nevertheless be absolutely certain that since Jesus carried your sins in his own body on the cross when he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You will never, not even for one moment, be forsaken. You will never be on your own. This is Jesus who said, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Thank God that Jesus is your refuge, he is your strength, and he is a very present help in trouble. Amen.